Well, good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you. Let's see, we're picking up um, after a little break last week on our mini-series in the book of Proverbs. Now, this, thus far, we've covered uh, two things in the, in the two prior messages. The first is just sort of what wisdom is. And remember, we talked a lot about creation. God created the world, sort of not random or chaotic, but with a purpose. And with a moral structure to things. And wisdom really is just finding the structure of things and going with the grain of the universe rather than swimming upstream. And then last week, or the week prior to that, excuse me, we talked about the character traits of a wise person. A wise person is someone who learns. A wise person is someone who grows in knowledge, who has insight and foresight. And this morning... What we're going to do is turn our attention to more practical matters, and that is the specific behaviors that a wise person demonstrates or lives out in their day-to-day walk. Now, if you read Proverbs, it does touch on almost every aspect of human life. So if you read specifically chapters 10 to chapters 29, you'll find that it talks about business, business ethics. It talks about family relationships, the use and abuse of alcohol. It talks about illness and health. It even talks about table manners, just to name a few things. However, there are certain topics that Proverbs touches on more than others. And what we're going to do this morning is take a look at three of those things. Proverbs has a lot to say about our speech, that is how we use our words. It has a lot to say about money, the wise use and the foolish use of money. And then it has a lot to say about emotions and how we should deal with our emotions and handle them. So we'll go through each of those this morning, but let's begin with our speech. Now, when it comes to these assorted topics, Proverbs has more to say about our words than anything else more than our decisions, more than our money, more than even works of righteousness. In total, there are about 90 Proverbs that instruct us in the manner of wise and foolish speech. Now, that might be surprising that Proverbs sort of tips the scales in the favor of speech, but that's something that we find that's consistent all throughout the Scriptures. A very high premium is placed on our words and how we use them. Now, why? Why is speech such an important thing? Well, simply because words are powerful. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, the teacher says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, that's not how we think about our words today, is it? Right? We live in a world of constant 24-7 chatter. We, as a people, prize self-expression, posting our thoughts, giving our not-so-expert opinion on anything and everything. And what that amounts to is a cheapening of our words. We just have lost a sense of their life-creating and life-destroying power. 
Words are cheap. Now, on this subject, there are too many Proverbs for us to draw from, so let's just take one and, and work from there. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18. It says, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So the tongue of a wicked person, or simply a foolish person, is like putting a lethal weapon in the hands of a child. And the key term here is that word rash or rashly. That is inconsiderate or thoughtless, just sort of saying whatever comes to mind. That kind of speech, the teacher says, wounds people. It's like the indiscriminate stabs or thrusts of a sword. You know, we have the phrase, don't we, of cutting remarks, just things we say offhandedly. And we tell kids, you know, and it's really good advice, think before you speak. Is it true? T. Is it helpful? H. Is it inspiring? I. Is it necessary? N. Is it kind? K. That's some pretty good advice when it comes to speech. And the point is, our speech has such a power to it that it always needs to be considered and aimed. It's, it's just too, it's too potent otherwise. And for the wise person, the, the aim, the thing that they're directing their speech toward is healing. That is, a wise person doesn't simply blurt out whatever comes to mind or simply express their feelings, whether that's valid or not. Instead, the speech of a wise person is measured and considered. They take into account the hearer of their words and speak, in the end, only that which is good for healing. Now, that doesn't mean they're simply flatterers. They may indeed need to speak a hard word from time to time, but ultimately, all that is ordered toward the purpose of healing. You could sum it up simply and say that wise speech is speech that's ordered toward the most possible good. And it's worth pausing here for a moment because, again, if you survey Proverbs, you'll find that this issue of being slow to speak is something that is addressed at many points. It's something that comes up just again and again. Proverbs 13, verse 3. The one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. So that is rash speech not only wounds the hearer, right? So I can harm you by just sort of saying whatever comes to my mind. But in the end, that harms me as well. Right? How many times have we come away from a conversation, not to mention an argument, thinking I've said too much or... I just shouldn't have said that. And what we do is create trouble for ourselves in our many and unconsidered words. But wisdom, it counsels us to guard our speech, sort of to be reluctant about what we say. Proverbs 15, verse 28, it says, The heart of a righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. So a good, a good rule of thumb here is just to realize that the first thing to come to your mind 
that is your immediate gut level response is usually the wrong one and perhaps, as the proverb says, the evil one. Instead, our speech should be guarded. It should be considered and ordered toward the most good. And if we could boil it down, bringing in other passages of Scripture into consideration, I think we would just say this, that wise speech considers the hearer and how to benefit them, while foolish speech only considers the speaker. You know, Paul frames it up this way in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. The word there is literally corrupt, a word that comes from corruption and breeds corruption in others. He says, don't let any of that happen. Instead, but only such a word that is good for edification. Uh, the concept there, edification, is just simply upbuilding. Speak what is going to build up your brothers and sisters, what's going to encourage them in their walk with the Lord. So, on the one hand, there's sort of a kind of speech, a foolish speech, that's concerned with it's expressing its own opinions, venting its own feelings, advocating for its own causes. And there's another that just simply has one aim, and that's the good of the hearer. So, rash speech is something ruled out by wisdom. We're counseled to just be, be slow to speak. But there are other forms of speech that Proverbs takes its aim against, and those are particularly uh, gossip and lies. Again, survey Proverbs 10, or even before that, survey the whole of Proverbs, and you'll find that these, again, are just issues that come up a lot. Now, gossip, of course, is roundly condemned because what it does to relationships and communities. Proverbs 26, verse 20. For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisper, contention quiets down. So, what a dry log is to fire, so a whisperer or a talebearer or a gossip is to strife within community. And this is kind of hard, not just for the one who would sort of be a talebearer, but for us as well, because the major reason gossip can be so dangerous is because it's, it's kind of delicious to us. There's something about it that's very pleasing to our flesh. And we seem to relish in stories just about the sins and stupidity of others. Look at Proverbs chapter 18, verse 8. The words of a whisper are like dainty morsels, and they go into the innermost parts of the body. So gossiping words are compared to a, a, a spreading fire. And here, if we can modernize it to a delicious appetizer that's being passed around the table. It's a pretty striking image, right? People gobbling down and taking pleasure in the destruction of someone's reputation like it was chips and dip. So that's one thing that obviously God is against. There's that passage in Proverbs chapter 6 where there are listed seven things that God hates. And three of those behaviors are related to the tongue. The last one being Proverbs chapter 6, verse 19, one who spreads strife among brothers. So what God loves, what God is after with our speech, is peacemaking, right? That's what he wants. If gossip is what tears apart things, speech of peacemaking is what God likes or what God wants. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, Paul puts it this way. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, 
to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. What I really love about this passage is that word rule there, it comes from the sporting world and it's used to refer to like an umpire at the games. Right, he sort of manages what's happening. He makes sure that the rules are, are being followed um, and that there's an order to things. And so as an umpire rules or officiates a match, so the peace of Christ, Paul says, is to officiate our affairs with one another, and particularly as it pertains to our speech. The peace of Christ is like an umpire in the body of Christ that presides over our public and private conversations, even our thoughts as like a conductor would an orchestra or a chairman would a meeting. James says, you guys know that very stern passage from James chapter 2, that um, no one can tame the tongue, but Christ can. Christ certainly can tame the tongue. So it seems one main idea throughout Proverbs as it regards to our speech is just simply restraint. And I think that's where wisdom begins. It's really easy, right? It's the, probably the most common temptation that I have is just to say too much, to talk too much. We can't always control what we feel, nor can we control the thoughts that dominate our minds. But one thing we can do is just simply choose to keep our mouths closed. And that's a start. Right When we sort of cage our tongue behind our teeth, maybe even through a clenched jaw, then Christ can lay the bit and bridle over the unruly tongue, and he can direct it toward its healing purposes. So, speech. Speech is very, very crucial to being a wise person. Now, another topic that uh, the teachers of wisdom have much to say about is wealth and its counterpoint of poverty. Now, this is uh, always a pretty uncomfortable topic. I would almost stand before you and rather speak about anything else than money, but it's so prevalent in Proverbs, it comes up so many times that we just can't ignore it. And when we put the whole picture together of what Proverbs says about money and poverty, there are five themes that come to the fore, and they sort of balance each other out. So let's start here. The first is that wealth is a reward. It's a sort of bonus that comes along with wisdom. So when the father, he's speaking to his son here, when he's extolling to him the benefits of wisdom, he, he says this to his son. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 16. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. The result of wisdom, as it's depicted here, are riches and honor. And listen, this is just basic common sense at work here. Unless someone's wealth comes to them by pure chance or an inheritance, right? not to mention oppression, wealth is generally obtained through wisdom and more specifically, diligence. You'll find diligence commended again and again throughout the Proverbs. It's a key aspect of wisdom. As the teacher says, Proverbs 10, verse 4, the hand of the diligent makes rich. Again, common sense. Work harder than others, work longer than others, and it's just going to pay off. 
um, at least as it pertains to one's career. And, you know, that's the subject of countless motivational speeches. Just, just work hard and it'll pay off. And the counterpart of diligence and wealth is, of course, sloth and poverty. And that's our second point. So picking up on that verse I just cited, Proverbs 10, verse 4, once again it says, Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Again, there's nothing quite so groundbreaking here, just simple common sense. And we don't need to look too hard at our experience and the situation and circumstances around us to see that this principle bears out in action, right? Very good. So far, so conservative. But that leads us to our third point. Poverty, as it's depicted in the Proverbs, is not simply due to laziness. There are other factors, uh, specifically uh, sort of abuse of alcohol and love of pleasure is a thing that leads to poverty that Proverbs warns about, but also this issue of injustice. Proverbs would lead us to be weary of making stark generalizations, supposing that because, you know, that fellow is poor, he must be foolish, or because that fellow is rich, he must be wise. Rather, wisdom presents to us a more nuanced picture of the factors that lead to wealth and poverty. Uh, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 23 says, Abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor, but it's swept away by injustice. So the problem here is not personal initiative, right? It's not, Solomon's not saying that, you know, this person's just a bum. There's not a failure to act. The problem is oppression. In this case, the poor have more resources than they could ultimately desire, but the powerful swoop in and take it away. And reading this, right, it's not hard to think of the mega corporations of our day that exploit overseas communities for the riches of their natural resources. Like, that just happens all the time. This, this bears out in reality. And of course, the scriptures have a lot to say about this. You know, those really boring parts in Exodus and Leviticus have a wealth of instruction about protecting the poor from the kind of exploitation that Solomon is speaking about here. Israel's laws condemn unjustly low wages. They condemn low interest rates. Or excuse me, they don't condemn that. They condemn loans with excessive interest rates. They condemn a legal system that sort of tilts in favor of the poor who can have money and power to get what they want, the verdict they desire. And it also condemns social prejudice against immigrants and minorities. So wisdom acknowledges that there are many personal failures that lead to poverty. I was reading a book not too long ago, and they, had, they started this, this sort of almost worldwide nonprofit, and they were helping people pull them out of poverty. And they did all these great things, started businesses, but they realized in a lot of the cases this, there was a personal problem. We just got people richer to do more evil, right? So he could go have more, more bad things. But that's not always the case, right? And I think maybe a conservative mindset, that's what we think. But the Bible would also sort of say, hey, there's another factors, the more factors here that need to be considered. Another aspect that Proverbs mentions that we won't touch on here is personal tragedy. 
another massive contributor to poverty. Which and then leads us to our fourth point. Wisdom is bound up with generosity and a concern for the poor. Check this out. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 7. The righteous is concerned for the rights of the poor. The wicked does not understand such concern. So we were told in the previous verse, and again all throughout Proverbs, that it's wrong to directly exploit the poor. And here we're told that it's also wrong simply to show no concern for them. So those kind of matters are just above a wicked person. He doesn't even understand them. Because he is limited, his perspective is, to his own well-being and happiness. That's all he really can think about. But a righteous person, someone in possession of genuine wisdom, understands that the poor have rights, as our passage says. And they have claims that ought to be satisfied. They simply can't be ignored. Hence, again, the father says to his son, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Now, the crucial word here, where I think Proverbs is so ahead of its time, is the word do. Helping those in need, the poor in particular, is not simply a nice thing to do. I mean, it is that, right? It's not simply something to make us feel good about ourselves. It it does feel good. Rather, it's an obligation, so long as it is in our power to do it. It's do them. Now, why is this social concern and generosity such a crucial aspect of wisdom? Ultimately, because wisdom comes from God, and God himself is righteous and just. God defends the vulnerable. God looks after those who don't have anyone to look after themselves. He has a special concern for these people. And when wisdom enters the heart, when righteousness becomes a controlling desire for our lives, suddenly... We're concerned with matters that are beyond us and those who are having their justice denied them. Which leads us now to our final point about wealth, and it's simply that it's of limited value. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 4. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. On my first reading of this proverb, I thought, okay, this is speaking about human affairs. But the more I thought about it, I think, ah, maybe not. Because if you have money, it will profit you on the day of wrath. You can pay off, you can do whatever you want if you have enough money. However, the one area that money is useless in is divine judgment. The day of wrath as it pertains to God. So the teacher helps us to sort of put our lives in perspective here. The pursuit of wealth can blind us to what really matters. And in the end, there's a very real possibility of people arriving 
on that terrifying day of wrath and realizing I poured everything into stuff that ultimately doesn't matter. And all of that is just proved to be useless. And what really profits someone, what really counts in life and in death and on the day of judgment is righteousness. The imputed righteousness of Christ worked out into our own lives. Proverbs 28 verse 6 Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich. It's just better to be righteous than it is to have all the money in the world. And again, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 1, Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. All right, it's better to serve up crust on the table with peace and with happiness than to have a remarkable feast with strife and conflict in a home. Righteousness is just better. What a message, right, for our time and for our day where we're so sort of materialistic. So therefore, in the end, the counsel of wisdom as it comes to wealth is really pretty simple. Proverbs chapter, <coughs> excuse me, 30, verses 8 and 9. Uh, he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. There are sort of two dangers that we're called to avoid here. One is sort of you just have enough and you just forget God. And so there's a danger there that we need to be aware of, always sort of bringing ourselves back to ground zero. And the other is to be so poor that you end up stealing and profaning the name of God. Proverbs just says it's good to be right in the middle. It's good to be right in the middle. So, that's a quick overview of what it says about wealth. Now, the last aspect of wisdom, I'm sorry if this feels a little bit of, you know, we're being pulled in a bunch of different directions, but, but that's Proverbs for you. There's not a lot of organization, so you're going to be all over the place. But the last aspect of wisdom um, is as it pertains to our emotions. Now, this is pretty obvious, right? Emotions are powerful, uh, for good or for ill. And to live well, we just need to learn to live wisely with our emotions. And what I want to say at the outset, and I think this is important, is that the goal of Proverbs is not the elimination of emotion. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Stoicism, or even certain strands of Eastern philosophy. But in those schemes, the goal is to be free from emotion, both positive and negative. And what it results in, in the long run, is, is sort of just a, a, a detachment and indifference to things. Now, true, our emotions are confusing. Our emotions are complex. And they are often sinful. But a Christian perspective would say that they're not inherently evil. Your emotions don't need to be eliminated. They just need to be trained. And in Proverbs, what that means specifically is moderation. That's finding the happy medium between excessive emotional expression on the one end and then no emotion at all on the other. Actually, I think an even better way to put it would simply say that what Proverbs wants from us in regard to our emotions is self-possession. 
A wise person is someone who has the reins on their emotions and not the reverse. A wise person may be very emotional, but those emotions, in the end, are subject to the will of God. So we all have our own unique temperaments, right? We have our own unique emotional challenges, different emotions that would seek to dominate us, or maybe just being too emotional in general, or not showing enough emotion at all. Proverbs wants us to find the right medium between those two things. So, emotions can be good and bad, but let's first talk about two bad emotions, and those are anger and envy. Proverbs has a lot to say about these, specifically the, ang- the issue of anger. And generally, the counsel is the same when it comes to anger, and that's that one should be slow to anger. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29, he who ha- is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. So the instruction here uh, is pretty obvious, and it's probably something that we've seen play out in our own lives. Right? When was the last time you had an immediate outburst of anger and it profited you or anyone around you? The likely answer is almost never. Rather, as the teacher says, it, it exalts or promotes folly and foolishness. It's just not beneficial in the end. And the reason that anger promotes sin and foolishness is because it has a blinding effect on us. Now, we sometimes use that expression, seeing red, to describe anger. Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. The color drains from your vision. That is sort of the the moral texture of things goes out the window. And instead, kind of like a bull, you see one thing, and that's the offense. Now, in some circumstances, that can be a good thing. Right? Anger is not... um, inherently evil, as we've said. It can be used for toward good ends. There are some times where all you need to see is the offense, but in most cases, that's, that's not helpful, right? Now, why? All because anger comes locked and loaded with its own self-justification, and that's what gets us into trouble. You know, I may uh, or may not be justified in my reaction, but that's beside the point. The real point is that When I'm angry, I feel justified. I feel like I'm right. I feel like this is what I should be doing. And therefore, I just, I have the license to pour scorn and insults. And in some cases, right, the worst cases of anger, physical abuse is the result. And it's not till the spell of anger has passed that one can sort of look back on things and assess the situation, and just see the madness and folly of their own words. So instead, what we're recommended here is just slowness. Learning to be slow to anger. Now again, anger doesn't need to be eliminated wholesale. It just needs to be moderated. And I don't even pretend to speak to every circumstance, because there's a lot of different angers out there, right? Different things that make us angry. But one thing that can help us as anger seeks to arise and control is the virtue of humility or meekness. The virtue of humility or meekness. So when the blood pressure rises, 
you know, when your ears start to ring and they get hot and your gut starts to twist in anger, what we need in that moment is, is meekness. Now, meekness is a, is a pretty misunderstood term in our day. Uh, some think that meekness is sort of an embarrassing self-depreciation, a kind of false humility that lets people trample on them. That's not meekness. Or others think that meekness is simply cowardice, right? That is sort of shrinking from the challenge and just sort of baptizing cowardice with the name meekness. That's not, that's not it either. Rather, meekness is best understood in contrast with pride. Those are the two opposites. You know, when a proud man is insulted or slighted, what, what's his reaction? The one thing that he won't do is let it pass, right? Our, our pride has become offended, and therefore our name must be defended, our reputation must be defended, whatever it is. Now, he might not act immediately, and his anger might burn for some time, but eventually he's going to get back, right? He's going to level things out. Now, meekness is just the opposite of that. Jesus described himself as meek. That doesn't mean Jesus backed down from a challenge. He certainly didn't. That didn't mean Jesus was a pushover. He certainly wasn't. Meekness is the ability to bear slights and personal injury graciously. That's what meekness is. And what undergirds meekness is a profound trust in God. It simply waits for God's revealing and vindicating justice. Because listen, there is a day when all counts will be settled, when every wrong is going to be righted, and a meek person is just content to hold out to that day. A meek person says, I will leave my justice in the hands of God. And even more, as a meek person progresses into holiness, he or she then just simply forgives the wrong without bearing uh, vengeance or seeking redress. Of course, that shouldn't happen in every situation. There are situations where there needs to be redress, but generally, that's the direction that meekness tends. Again, meekness is an expression of extraordinary faith. And in my mind, that kind of faithful meekness is, in the end, the greatest strength. So let's start wrapping things up now with the second emotion that Proverbs has a little bit to say about, and that's envy or jealousy. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 4. Wrath is fierce, and anger is a flood, but who can stand before jealousy? Now, that's a pretty strong statement. Someone's anger can be resisted, his wrath can be assuaged, but jealousy is like a flood that sweeps us away. Now, I hope it's not an emotion that we experience a lot, but we all have certainly dealt with jealousy or envy. And it really is the one thing that is more powerful than anger or even lust. It's, it's all-consuming. And the first thing to say is that just it, envy just feels awful. Proverbs chapter 40, 14, verse 30. A tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness in the bones. Now, the term here for passion is, is just simply that of excessive desire. Now, there are some forms of wanting that are just wrong, biblically understood. But it's not wrong on the other hand, to desire security 
you know, it's not wrong to des- desire a more spacious home for the kids with a lower interest rate to come along, come along with it. And the same holds for much else, right? It's not wrong to want to be happy or to want possessions or someone or something. Those aren't necessarily bad. The problem is when that desire becomes out of hand and uncontrollable. Then it becomes passion and it becomes a rottenness in the bones. It be, a, a deep and abiding resentfulness takes over until all of life is just simply spoiled. Now listen, other sins can be fun for a time. That is, before payday comes. There's pleasure and lust. There's reward and vengeance. There's satisfaction and gluttony. But there's nothing sweet in envy. There's just nothing good about it. It's, it's, it's rottenness in the bones. And the antidote here as we sort of begin to draw our minds toward the Lord's Supper, the antidote here to the rottenness of passion is ultimately gratitude. Gratitude is really the only way to pour cold and refreshing water on a bitter spirit. Gratitude allows us to receive what is, not what should be, or not what we want to be. It enables us to welcome what God has actually given us. And it brings tranquility to the heart. All that excessive desiring, all that excessive wanting that just leads to bitterness and anger disappears. Because you learn to be grateful. And your heart is now tranquil. And that's life to your body. And actually, above all, our gratitude ought to be in the good news of Jesus Christ. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 30, the teacher says, Bright eyes gladden the heart. So this is someone coming to you with bright eyes. And he says, good news puts fat on the bones. You know, there's a lot in this world and in our personal lives that would leave our bones dried out and tired. Right? There's a lot of things that would discourage us, and dim the eyes. But we can always turn to the infinite well of gladness and refreshment that is the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Good news puts fat on the bones. I love that illustration. So no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing, there's always reason for cheerfulness. And the Christian community, in the midst of all the chaos and wildness that is our world right now, should always be a grateful and glad-hearted community because we have the good news. And that's what we come to remember at the table now. So I'd like you to come and receive the elements, to take them back to your places, and to reflect on this good news because it is exceedingly good news. And I'll lead us in just a moment.